I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Last week we spoke about the path that Mathieu followed from being a PhD graduate to becoming the world's happiest man. We discussed how a three by three meters room on top of a mountain in isolation with no running water and very little food was Matthew's happiest time of his life and how being celebrated at Davos to him was madness. I hope you will enjoy part two of this conversation, which I will tell you will take us so much deeper into the reality of what cultivating a healthy mind is all about. I'll be very open, Matthew. I mean, one of the reasons I was waiting to have this conversation, of course, I love slow-mo and I love to share with my listeners, but I'm going through, a, I think, what you went through when you made that decision to go to Tibet. With COVID-19 locking me down, giving me that tiny bit of space to literally, I mean, I think many of my listeners know, I start every year with what I call a New Year's intention. I don't have New Year's resolutions. It's an intention, a directional way where I'm going. This year, I call the year of silence and space and look at how the world responded. I get the absolute best opportunity on earth for silence and space. Now, what COVID-19 did to me is it said to me, this is so amazing when it comes to your ascendance, your learning, your ability to reflect that I need more of it. But it's so difficult for someone who has been in that path of being on planes all the time, being in video conferences all the time, you know, engaging in speeches and webinars and this and that, to do what you did five years in solitary meditation, if you want. Now, giving up on romantic love, which is sold to us as the absolute most important thing that you need to have in your life, right? And those changes you're saying are not necessarily, they don't have to be as extreme, but they have to be directionally on that path. Is that what you're saying? Well, it's not extreme, no. Not exactly, if I may, with due respect, because I have many, many friends who are incredibly wonderful practitioners, and they are married and all that. And even they are lead what seems to be ordinary life, they still manage some of them to do nine years retreat. So it's not about your way of life. It's about priority within, I must say. Yes, and uh, being inspired by the teachings, going on the path and uh, moving along. And also having constantly, I mean, like once you start looking at the way the mind works and you try to somehow untangle the causes of happiness and suffering no, because if you look at uh, most of the mental toxins that uh, poison both our happiness and that of others, like animosity, anger, hatred, or nagging jealousy that doesn't give you a minute of rest, or this arrogance that it's not a happy state of mind, or craving that you even more you drink, the more you thirst, like drinking salty water, or scratching endlessly. So all these are not unhappy state of mind. But somehow we fall into that very often. So it's something that was built up, thought after thought, mood after mood, emotion after emotion, 
and build up into more lasting traits. So now once they are formed, they are like a roll of paper that has been rolled for quite some time. If you put it flat on the table and lift your hand, it rolls back again. Yeah. What you need to do with patience, but with a sense of direction again, is to deal thought after thought, emotion after emotion, mood after mood, and somehow treat that as it arises and undo this tendency, erode the tendency while successfully dealing with every emotional episode through skillful means, freeing them as they arise, not by sort of putting them, you know, suppressing them in a dark corner like a time bomb. There's all the techniques of freeing emotion as they arise and slowly eroding the tendency for those stronger negative mental state to arise. So then after some time, I can say that many of my friends, uh, monk or not monk, we have done on that path for many, many years. I mean, we still have, of course, <laughs> you know, those afflicting mental states do come. But we are so much better equipped to deal with them. And as the worst ones, I'm really convinced that most of the people I know around here where I am now and in monastery, the thought of hatred, for instance, to really want to harm someone. I believe that it's completely gone for good from those people's mind. You might say, well, of course, why not? But I mean, it's still quite remarkable if you think about that. that you may get upset, you may get a bit nervous, you may have a, a little bit flash of being annoyed, but never would you willingly want to harm someone. That's already... Extraordinary, if you think that about it. That is so beautiful. And that's something that's really achievable. No problem. So that's part of what comes over the years, slowly cultivating those qualities through mind training, to listening to the teaching, to doing some retreats. You don't have to go for hermitage for so many years, but you can do 20 minutes a day, a little more. So from time to time, you do 15 days or one month retreat. You meet qualified instructors. You set on the path. So that's very, very possible. There's no question. And it's not like a hidden land, mysterious stuff, you know, with light shining and vibration and all these things. It's the most simple, basic, healthy mind. You know, my friend Richard Davidson, who is a great neuroscientist, he said now this new center for studying the healthy mind. What is a healthy mind? And it's a mind that is not swayed by those negative emotions. That's so beautiful when you say this, because so two sides to this. One side is the idea that all it takes is setting the direction, putting 20 minutes a day, then finding a time for retreat, then basically do what you can, I think is what Matthew is saying. You guys, any one of us, even through our parenting life or our busy work life, the more we dedicate to searching for that path, the more we can find ourselves heading down and heading closer to that path. And I think that's really beautiful. Maybe there will be one day where you will feel a calling inside you to say, no, no, I need to go further. I need to spend three years away. I need to. But until that happens, or if it ever happens, you can just start with finding the right teacher, looking for the right content, having the right intention, having the right practice. I have to stop though and say the beautiful word of what you said about not feeling hatred for another I have to admit that this would completely fix our world. I think the problem with our modern world and all of the challenges we have around social media and bullying and all of the depression that we get and suicide and all of that is because of the presence of that moment where you may disagree with someone, that's one feeling, 
you may want them to change. That's another feeling or intention, but that feeling of hate, of I want to hurt them. I want to post something that humiliates them on social media, or I want to attack their point of view, or I want to even hurt them physically. This is where our world is going wrong. And to get to a point where you can have that feeling no longer be there, that's a massive achievement. That's something that we all should hold hands and, and try to achieve together. How far do you think we are, Matthew? I mean, we're in a world that is maybe going a bit in the opposite direction, don't you think? No, it's not. You know, you know that, I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, it may seem so because of the media and the fact that there's always something terrible somewhere, sometime happening. But we know well from vast studies of history, because we have tendency to be focused on the present moment and forget how it was before because we are not there and we don't study that. I mean, it's sort of well-known and that over time, somehow, the world is much less violent. It may seem strange to say that because you open the TV and all you see is violence. And the, one of the reasons I think is evolution equipped us to pay attention to what is potentially dangerous. Yes, the negative. So yeah. If 100 people uh, go somewhere to help the elderly, it doesn't make the evening news. If one of them kill an old lady, then it will make the evening news. And that's a good sign. It means that it is an aberration. If it was normal for us to be mean and terrible, we won't be news. So of course it's normal. Why should we even pay attention to that? So we pay incredible attention because it's something completely abnormal. So what we may call the banality of goodness is that most of the time, most of 7 billion human beings behave decently with each other. But that makes no news. And even ourselves, we don't pay so much attention because this is the default mode. So when someone slammed the door in front of us or do something terrible, then we sort of, you know, we start. Imagine you come off of a plane and you don't say the first thing to your friend, oh, it's wonderful, nobody had a fight in this flight. <laughs> if someone has a fight, you will speak of that. Two guys start brawling in the plane and start punching each other. It's a story suddenly. So that's why. And we know, you know, you, you can see Steven Pinker, a sort of synthesis of all the different work that have been done. Uh, just take the homicide rate. If you ask someone compared to 14th century, uh, what is the highest homicide rate? And they, they might hesitate. Some of them say it's higher now, or maybe a little bit less. In Europe, for instance, it's not a 10% decrease. It's 100 times less. You know, the average homicide was 100 for 100,000 per year. In UK, there are some records in 14th century. No, it's one, one, 100 times less. So even the number of casualties per conflict, whether civil wars, border wars, interstate war, anything, or genocide, compared to 50 years ago, is going down, much down, by 10, 20 times. It's simply that we always are focused on what's happening somewhere. So the general tendency, because of democracy, because of more stable states, uh, because of uh, slowly improving the status of women, many, many factors, make that somehow it's less violent. So it's, but there are contrary forces. In North America, especially, there's the epidemics of narcissism. That's no good. There is, uh, of course, the craziness of uh, sometimes what happens on the political scene. So there's uh, certainly you know, narcissism goes with the reduced empathy. So there are contrary forces. Hyper-individualism, the fact that we can virtual contacts, you know, you spoke of cyberbullying, something that will never do someone in front of you when you can see the people starting to cry or being hurt. 
and their facial expression, their voice, and their bodily posture, and you see them suffering, and you, unless you are a psychopath, you can go on harming them, but you know, online you can do anything you want, unleash all this hatred. So all these are contrary forces, and uh, you know, it may be one that will become stronger, but basically, I think if you look at science of uh, young children, there is, even though we may become psychopaths and commit mass murder and genocide, there is still a stronger predisposition for goodness, for appreciating people who behave nicely to each other, for cooperation. As a social animal, this is a stronger predisposition. So we need to foster a culture that nurtures that instead of stiffing it up. So this is really a very realistic, though optimistic view. Huh? So basically, we're saying there are forces and contrary forces, and this is what, you know, there is more exposure to everything that's happening. So we think it's negative, but it's actually better than before. Yet inside each of us, there are also forces and contrary forces. And if we nurture the good forces and reduce the contrary ones, we become a better world inside as well. And I want to use this as a segue to talk about something that I really want to learn from you. So you practice three types of meditation. Meditation, I believe, is sadly sold in California as this exercise of numbing your brain. Silence your brain. Let's not call it numbing. Let's silence our brains. But you seem to have, I don't know how to call it. You know, you have compassion meditation, open awareness meditation, and analytical meditation, which don't seem to be meditations where you're just silent. These are meditations where you're actually seeking. Can you tell us about them a little bit and how different they are from just observing your breath? You tell one of your friends, I'm training. Mm -hmm. Or say, I am training. So what would be your, the question to me? Say, I'm training. Yeah, you're doing what? I stop there. Yeah, you ask what? <laughs> what do you yeah. train? Yes. So do you do badminton? Chess? Swimming? So what we call meditation in the English, the words uh, Sanskrit and Tibetan, they respectively mean to cultivate in Sanskrit, bhavana, and in Tibetan, gom means to become familiar with. Interesting, okay. So that means cultivate means to cultivate a skill or a quality. So attention, basic attention, that most mindfulness, for instance, meditation, which is quite popular and rightly so, is basically cultivating the attentive presence in the present moment. Uh, we don't being distracted by wandering thoughts and always keeping that. That's one aspect of training. Now, you can cultivate loving kindness, which is very much <laughs> required in this world. And if you do so, you also need mindfulness, otherwise you are distracted. So you get two for the price of one, by the way. And then familiarization can go even deeper because it's not only familiaring yourself with attention, with compassion, with open presence. It's also familiarizing yourself with the nature of mind. And that's very, very deep. That's what is always there, that pure awareness that is always there behind the whirlpool of thoughts. Always there. No, that's what allows thoughts, emotion, reasoning, Correct. memory, the basic light that makes the difference between being aware and a, an object that is cognitively dark, like, a, like this thing is just no cognitive zero. So it's dark in terms of cognition. 
So light doesn't mean that it's some shining light in the dark. It's like a, a beam of light that allows you to see your inner world and to see what's happening outside. But light is not modified by what it lights up. If I put my torchlight toward a heap of garbage, it doesn't become dirty. If I light up a heap of gold, it doesn't become expensive. It just reveals all that. So it's not modified by the content. And that's very, very important because it means it's always there, no matter what. If you have hatred, it's just content. It comes with causes and conditions. So you can change that. You can change what is in the sky. Look at the empty sky. can be clouds of all kinds, cumulonimbus, stratus, but sky doesn't change. So you can change the clouds. <laughs> you can bring new causes and conditions. Instead of hatred, you bring unconditional love. It's still content. It's still mental construct, but it's a different kind. And that is possible because the basic, basic nature of your mind is not modified by hatred, by jealousy. It's just what allows that space that allows those things to unfold. So if you change the causes and conditions through training, then you will change the whole mental landscape. So of course, still now, I don't think much people think that meditation was stopping all your thoughts because if they try, they see it's impossible. And then what? <laughs> Sitting in between two mango trees with incense stick and emptying your mind is not going to work anyway. Your mind never <laughs> So the thing is not to be the slave of your thoughts. Oh, interesting. Is when thoughts arise, you know how to free them as they arise, like a bird passing through the sky that leaves no trace. And not one thought, oh, why did you do that to me? Or why not me? And then another thought comes, and another one, and two become four, becomes eight, becomes 16. Then soon your mind is completely invaded by a chain of thoughts. It's like the sky, one bird, 10 birds, 100,000 birds, and you don't see the sky anymore, you don't see the sun, it's all obscured. So... Let them pass. Don't let them proliferate. Don't try to stop. And then you return your freedom. And so that's, it's not only a training, it's also a familiarization because we are not used to do that. So that is really what meditation is about. So at some point, yes, you can rest in pure awareness for a while. But that's pure awareness and freedom. It's not just sitting in this blank, stupid state, sort of amorphous undetermined state. It's just the opposite. It's absolutely crystal clear. It's the most cognizant state, but it has no mental construct. So that only comes through experience. So yes, it is a training because if you just do nothing, it's not going to happen. Just like if you don't flex your muscle, you'll never become able to lift weight or to run a marathon or anything like that. But that's very different than analytical meditation or compassion meditation, because in that case, you're sort of encouraging certain thoughts. You're just guiding those thoughts. I mean, let's talk about compassion meditation to start. So from pure awareness, you start to meditate on the ability to have compassion for another, right? And that is not just responding to your thoughts, that's cultivating thoughts. That's cultivation, yes, but it's not just thought. Compassion is altruistic love. It's not just thought. It's some kind of, you know, unconditional compassion. In the beginning, you start with you know, someone who is very, very dear to you, with whom you feel unconditional love. You only think, may this person be happy, be thrive in life, be spared suffering, and your mental is filled with that love. But then you can extend that, you know, why stop to this person? And then after that is a state of unconditional love. It may not have any particular object. It's a state of mind. It's just filled with love. It's like the sun shining, there are sun rays. 
And then whoever comes in the field of that just get the light and the warmth, but it doesn't have to be. Ah, that's so beautiful the way you say it. Object targeted. Yeah. And if someone is very near to you, they get more warm, more light because of circumstances of life. But it's not discriminative. I mean, it's not at the cost of not shining on others. It just happened that they are close and they are near and then so forth. So that state comes with the idea, may all beings without exception find happiness and the cause of happiness. And what's wrong with that? It's not unrealistic. Nobody asks you to wake up in the morning and start changing the world. If you can, you do. But it's not conditioned is to have absolutely exclude no one from your heart. And I just wish everybody somehow find happiness and the cause of happiness. And that may mean, may they stop to be confused, may they stop to have hatred that makes them bloody dictators. So instead of squashing the brain of a bloody dictator, you wish from the depth of your heart that the hatred may go away from that person's mind. And that's love and compassion. It's not stupid at all. It's the only way, actually. It's like a skillful physician who has a mad, dangerous person. He might tie it up on the chair for a while, but then he's going to think how to cure that. Give me an example of analytical meditation. So I'm trying to ponder, for example, the true nature of the mind, okay? And this is the complex one. Yeah, go for it. The most classic analytical meditation in Buddhism is about imposture of the self, because Self-grasping, of course, is at the root of many of our suffering. In the beginning, I remember myself as a little boy, then I grow up, then I'm this old guy. But I think somehow it's me all the way. There's this kind of, it's like the Ganges or the Mississippi River, and I'm the boat which has been traveling all that. And I'm the essence of the river. And we think of that as being unitary, as being sort of constant and permanent. It's always me. I was the little boy. I'm the old guy, but it's the same. And as being somehow the core of my being, yes. And because of that, well, if it's that precious and that essential, I want to protect it. I want to please it. So then what happens? Oh, oh this might be a threat or this might fulfill my, the aspiration of that self. So then comes attracting and rejecting because we split like as if it was solid entities, me and the rest of the world. So there's me, my body, my mind, my name, everything we associate and we sort of, yes, so we have a tendency to identify with. So that's the self. Now, if it was just a concept, that's fine. But the fact that it leads to attraction repulsion, that needs to, when it intensifies, that it leads to craving and repulsion leads to animosity and hatred. And then jealousy, if we, someone else is happy, I'm not. And arrogance, because we think we are better than the average. All those things come from that initially. So if it was just an innocuous concept, then no problem. But because it's somehow the source of so many trouble, so then we need to find out, well, who is this guy? <laughs> yes. And you look at it. So that's where analytical meditation comes full blast. Okay. So you say, you push me. Oh, wow. That's your body now I pushed, isn't it? No, okay, that's the body. Then you hurt my feelings. Oh, no, 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 no. It's your feelings now. So it's not the body anymore. So the self or the ego has switched from the body to the feeling. And then you say, you hurt me when I, we push me. So there's the, the owner or my feeling, there's the owner. Now the mind is the owner of all that. Oh, but sometimes it's the body, sometimes it's the feeling, sometimes it's the owner. So what is that? Where is it? 
Yeah. So by accident, I lost both my legs. So I still identify very much. I'm Mathieu with only no legs. But somehow, I mean, you know, I have a lot of uh, psychological trouble, but it's still me. My ego or myself is not cut into two. So, okay, then is it everywhere? No, it's not. So where is it? So I feel, oh, I feel something in my chest and all that. Well, I mean, if you look at it, is it round? It's shaped, it's like a monkey, it's like a cloud. The more you look, the more it escapes. I say, no, no, finally, it's not outside, it's not diluted in my body, it's in my mind. Okay, great. Past thoughts are gone. Okay, we have impact on what we are now, all the memories, the influence, the tendencies, like what you put in the river, 100 miles up, do you see it now? But past thought is dead, basically. Yeah. You can have the influence of the past, but past is no more. The self cannot be in the past. Now, you may worry or have a lot of hopes in the future, future is not born yet, even you imagine it the way you want. So ego cannot be in the future. Now, in the present moment, it's ungraspable. Present moment, you cannot grasp. You know, it's always there, but it's always changing at the same time. So how can this ego be suspended in between something that doesn't exist anymore, something that doesn't exist yet, and something that is ungraspable? So then you come, boom, to some kind of you don't find. So then you rest in that no finding, and there's some kind of freedom. So it's not that the self and the I is a convenient illusion to function because we need to identify like that. So the I, I wake up, I'm alive, I'm hungry, I'm cold, I'm hot, it's okay. The person, the story, the story of the Mississippi or the story of the Ganges, that's all fine. You know, I have a life, I have so many experiences. But what is not needed is this concept of a discrete separate entities that polarizes all my, I want to please that, I want to protect that, and suppose, and you can see it at work many occasions in life. You know, say you are sleeping, we give the example, you're sleeping in a boat, middle of a lake and taking a nap. Suddenly, bam, someone runs in your boat. You wake up, how dare you? Get angry. You thought you were the target. You see it's an empty boat and then you laugh. Why? Because it was not you who was targeted. It's just an accident. You shout, you are just a bastard to a cliff and the sound comes back with the echo. You don't mind. Because you know you are not really targeting yourself. So you see so many occasions where sort of this ego grasping comes in picture. And that's, you know, the eye, the eye becomes the mind. There's many uh, psychology experiments, very interesting. You know, you give to a group of students small objects, like a cheap watch, and you ask them to value that, say, say average $10. So you say, okay, now it's yours. Then you do other things. And then after half an hour, you say, okay, now we want to buy it back from you. And usually, <laughs> they won't sell it for less than $15. Exactly. <laughs> so that's the mind added tax. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's entirely fabricated. Different context. So all that, you can deconstruct that to analytical meditation. And then when you get to the end of it, you go into contemplative meditation. You just sit in that freedom of not finding the ego. And that's it. No more with this imposture. <laughs> oh, not finding the ego. That is the key to life. I think this leads me to my biggest question that I never understood fully. So I want to understand it from Buddhism. But before I do that, I normally make an announcement at the end to tell my listeners, if you guys are enjoying this conversation with Matthew as much as I am, and you're inspired, so please help us inspire others. Neither I nor Matthew want anything from this other than making as many people in the world open their eyes and find happiness. So please 
share what you learned with others, invest in yourself, but encourage others to invest too. Tell them about slow-mo, tell them about Matthew's work. Let them try to get on that journey that we're trying to inspire everyone to be part of. Matthew, explain emptiness for me, please. Emptiness is a very, that's a very, very, very complex view. You know, once uh, Dalai Lama was asked by, uh, I think by Christian priest, okay, I understand very well some of the Buddhist teaching, but uh, tell me about emptiness. And he said, that's not your business, he said. (laughs) (laughs) Buddhist business. Exactly. (laughs) It is very, very, very important. And it's very difficult to understand. No, it's not. It's uh, in a nutshell. I mean, anyway, it can be scary. And he said, if you teach emptiness to someone who's not prepared, they might faint. <laughs> exactly. Even said that their head explodes. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, emptiness is mostly wrongly understood as some kind of nihilism, some kind of north. Nothing is there. Boom. The pre-Big Bang sort of state. Yeah. <laughs> it's nothing like that. One of the most famous quotes from the transcendent knowledge, the Prasnaparamita, is form is emptiness, emptiness is form. And that means very clearly that emptiness is nothing other than that. Emptiness is the nature of all phenomena, the ultimate nature. So why is that so? Because phenomena appear. So by acknowledging that, you get rid of nihilism. Yes, the very phenomena will be so mad as to deny that. I mean, this is just nonsense. I mean, who can be nihilistic? Just all world unfolding constantly under your eyes and to your five senses and in your mind. So it doesn't make sense. But what appears, is it as solid and real as you ascribe solidity and reality to it? Of course, it's there. No question. But how does it appear? As some separate, autonomous, self-existing entities? Not at all. Or like look at a rainbow. You cannot deny the rainbow is in the sky. And children could almost think they would catch by running toward the rainbow. But rainbow comes because of curtain of rain, sun at a certain angle behind you, and all these conditions. Now, you think if you mask the sun behind you, at least something of the rainbow could remain. A little bit. Nothing. Zero. Yeah. Because it is the interdependence of so many factors. So things arise interdependence, not as self-existing entity. That applies to ego, that applies to physics. You know, the Buddhism has a very smart and sophisticated deconstruction of the idea of undivided atoms. They completely refuted that before Democritus and the Greek philosophers. They say if something was existing on its own as a separate entity, it will not belong to the universe because it will not be in relation with everything else. Therefore, it could not interact. Therefore, it will not be a cause nor a result. So anyway, this is a complex idea that the nutshell is things appear, yet they are void of intrinsic existence. So emptiness is emptiness of solid reality and intrinsic existence. It doesn't mean not existing. That's why the nature of form is emptiness. But emptiness sort of manifests as form or as whatever. The infinite display of phenomena. So that's in Buddhism, gets rid of the notion of first cause. You know, in many religions, or even the Big Bang, nothing became something. How? 
there is no, doesn't make any sense. Nothing is just a concept of the absence of things. How can a concept of the absence can be a cause of something? This is, doesn't make sense. Logically, it doesn't work. And everybody has been in problem with that, all the religion. The first cause. So they say it's a, like unchanging first cause. But then where did it come from? Oh, no, no, we don't know that. It's a mystery. Well, if the universe appears yet is devoid of solid intrinsic existence, you don't have to say how it came from nothing into existence because it doesn't solidly exist. So you get rid of the problem of the origin. So it's a beginningless display of infinite phenomena which are devoid of intrinsic existence, yes, appear. So this is very profound, very complex. There's a lot of philosophical treatise about that. But it's not mind-boggling. You can understand that. I mean, so it makes sense. You don't sort of fall upon something that doesn't make sense. You know, like a first cause, it's almost impossible to make sense of it logically. So it, it does make a lot of sense that nothing is solid of its own reality in absence of the rest of reality. So basically everything exists in relativity, if you want, to everything else. And also in relation to each other. Yeah. There's only relations. So say your mind, a type of human consciousness, which will be different from a bat, different from an ant, meets with a certain set of phenomena which may not be fully determined. Like it's in quantum physics. Unless you measure the wave particle, it doesn't collapse. The wave doesn't collapse. Exactly. So it's undetermined. So let's take that example. What your type of consciousness and my human consciousness interacts with a set of phenomena that is not yet determined. It's an image. Huh? I'm not pretending I'm doing quantum physics or misuse of quantum physics. I mean, I know good quantum physicists and I'm aware we should not misuse it. But nevertheless, let's take that the, my type of consciousness is interacting with a set of phenomena that is not fully determined yet. So when I interact with that, there's a kind of crystallization, sort of collapse of the wave function. It's just an image. And therefore, I perceive the world in a certain way that the bat will perceive differently, the ant will perceive differently, and some kind of beings that cannot imagine that different type of consciousness. Something will arise at the perceived world that will be different for each other. And we assume that there's no fully self-determined reality behind those appearances that we see in different ways, but it is there and it is defined in its own term. No, there's only dynamic interrelation and something crystallized at some point as the collapse of the wave function, and there's nothing else than that. Yeah. So that's it, and that's fine. How is that important to my understanding of my own spirituality, of my own objective reality? How does this make me better? Because it's way to freedom, because you stop grasping to something as solid. Uh, you stop grasping, if you stop grasping at the ego as solid, as the mind as solid, at the concept of others as solid, at this is mine today, it should be mine tomorrow, that's my life, that's my friend, that's my wife, that's my own life. When you reify things, you grasp that crazy and that cause suffering. So if there was no suffering at the end of the tunnel, who cares about the ultimate nature of reality? But because you distort reality, this is the first initial cause of suffering. Ignorance. And ignorance is not not knowing the telephone directory by heart. It's misconstruing reality. Correct. Taking for permanent, which is impermanent, taking a separate, which is interdependent, believing of an independent self where there is a dynamic flow of experience, all those distortions of reality end up in suffering. That 
my dear friend is true wisdom. Well, I didn't invent anything, by the way. All the what the Lama is teaching, the Madhyamika teaching, I'm just, uh, you know, it's like a ill-digested version of the, of the wisdom <laughs> of the past. We truly appreciate that you bring it to us, Matthew. So you think you're not at that level of the other teachers, but you have been called the happiest man in the world. Do you believe you're the happiest man in the world? That's the biggest joke of the world. <laughs> I love you, man. You are an engineer or whatever, and, uh, you know, I'm a scientist. Just think five seconds. How can anyone know the state of mind of seven billion human beings? This is just complete nonsense. I mean, impossible. First, you don't measure happiness in the brain, number one. Second, what do you know about seven billion being someone in the remote area of Africa or Burma or anywhere? Who knows? This is just makes complete nonsense. This is our media exaggerating the title to get to a point where people... It's a good story. It is a good story, but it's also a story that got us to meet. And it's a story that I'm grateful for. And then it sticks to your finger like a piece of scotch that you can get rid of. (laughs) Exactly. So maybe when I die, they will write on my tomb here, last the happiest man in the world. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. The world lost the happiest man in it. No big deal. We hope to have you with us for a very long time to keep teaching us, Matthew. This has been one of my happiest conversations. And for that, I am totally, totally, totally grateful. It's been a joy and a pleasure. Thank you. And I will see you again soon, I hope. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. And see you at some point. And for all of you who joined us, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media. Search for mogaudat, slowmo, Soul for Happy or One Billion Happy. I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, there is always time to slow down. Until next time, stay happy.